Good afternoon and welcome to Clean Dreams. Please pray for me. My name is Troy and I am an alcoholic. Before we get started, I think it makes sense for us to invite he who presides over us all into this room and ask that his spirit is embedded in all of us. Some of you may be familiar with the prayer called the Serenity Prayer. If you don't mind engaging, let's go ahead and offer an invitation. God, God, please grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, once again, we'd like to welcome you to Clean Dreams. You know, our ultimate hope is that you are in recovery and are looking to hear a solution, and uh, we hope to be able to provide you some of that. We pray that you have an ear for the truth and genuine and humble um, sobriety. We know that uh, none of us have gotten here in a winning streak, and uh, sometimes we wake up in the morning and we have one foot in the bucket and the other in a banana peel. But what is most important is that we have to absolutely not pick up. Now, today I have a guest hostess, uh, Lucy E. But uh, before we introduce Lucy, uh, we would be remiss if we did not uh, thank and give credit to Sean C. for being our producer and Justin O. as the associate producer. Uh, We thank you very much for all that you've done for the program, and we definitely admire your journey in recovery. So... At this time, I'd like to introduce our speaker for today. Our speaker for today is a a person that I care very dearly for, and uh, we've got a history, uh, her family and I, and uh, I thought it would make sense to have uh, Erica come in today and uh, share her experience, strength, and hope, and uh, talk to us about her recovery and what the 12 steps have uh, done in her life, and you know, also give us an, a broad overview as to where you came from and and you know how you got here. Um, none of us, you know, get here on the smooth side of the mountain. You know, it's it's a rough trip, and uh, I'd love to have you share with our listeners and those of us in the room with you right now um, just how you did that. So, without any further ado, I introduce Erica M. Uh, thank you, everybody, for having me. I'm Erica M. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Hey, Erica. Hey. Um, well, I've never told my story before, and I'm excited to do so, and I hope people can relate um, or get some strength and hope from um, my own experience and what um, the 12 steps have done for me. Um, I am sober by the grace of God today. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I've worked the 12 steps, and um, today I have the ability to be, you know, invited to do something like this as opposed to not. Um, I was born January 17th, 1988. I'm 30 years old this year. Um, my family is Canadian. I was born in the U.S. I'm the only U.S.-born family member. Um, and I was born to uh, a family that I already had an older brother who was three years older than me, and he will get into this. I'll get into the story with regards to him a little bit later. 
and um, I had a mom and a dad that were married, um, and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia when I was about three years old. So my most of my memories are from Atlanta. Um, I grew up in a household that was chaotic to say the least. Um, my dad traveled a lot for work. I had a mom. Uh, my mom's a pharmacist, um, and she was not practicing at that time when my brother was growing up, and we were she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, some of my first memories are just, I guess, being scared, um, a lot of fear and anxiety. I just remember having to go to the doctor a lot as a kid because I clenched my teeth so tight that I was breaking my molars. Um, I was just a very nervous, anxious child. And I didn't know why until I got a little bit older and understood that my household kind of produced those feelings upon both myself, my brother, um, and my mom. Um, unbeknownst to me, my dad is an alcoholic and um, actively drinks today. And um, so I grew up in an alcoholic household without really knowing it because he traveled so much that it was kind of in disguise. And my mom's very in denial, codependent, perfect type person for an alcoholic to you know, an ultimate enabler. Um, so as I grew up, I went to a public school and then was transferred to a private school due to the fact that my brother was getting so much trouble in public school, they thought private school might be better. Um, I started noticing abuse in the house. Uh, my dad became very abusive to my mom um, as well as my brother. And I started experiencing abuse myself um, around the age of six, and it continued till I was about 14. Um, you know, to anyone that would be traumatizing. And I found a way to, I guess, cope with that um, through drugs and alcohol. I first um, drank when I was in fifth grade, drank to get drunk, and smoked marijuana. I started smoking cigarettes. Um, I was over to a friend's house, and her older sister was having a party. Um, and I remember being hungover the next day, but knowing that something happened the night before that made me okay for at least a period of time to not feel that intense anxiety. Um, so as I went to middle school and then high school at the private school, and my brother, um, probably when I was about 14 and he was about 17, um, started using drugs um, quite heavily and it really did progress quickly you know I knew he was smoking marijuana and then you know found out he was taking a lot of pills and then progressed to you know very hard drugs um, I got the attitude if you can't beat him join him I felt that he I could see that he was escaping somehow and I still could not so the first time I ever used hard drugs was with my brother, and um, I shortly after that started dating a drug dealer. And I moved out of my mom's house in nice suburbia and was living in a little less high-rent place, I guess you would say, um, with this guy I was dating who he lived with his brother, and him and his brother were selling drugs. And at first I thought they were just selling marijuana and then come to find out they sell cocaine so I decided 
you know, hey, let's experience with this. Let's see what happens. It was like I had, it was no fear. It, there was no fear there. It was, it's, at that point, I was almost like, well, if I die, I die. Um, just very little self-esteem. And as I come to realize through working the 12 steps and um, understanding more of my upbringing as to why I had no self-esteem. Um, anyway, so... My rela- relationship, I use air quotes, progressed with this <laughs> wonderful young man um, who I come to find out was someone that had done something very illegal to a younger woman about a year into the relationship. And um, I got I got scared and I moved back home. Now, my drug use didn't stop. In fact, it continued because I felt even more disgusting for being with someone that you would think you would want to have incarcerated, and I was dating him. Um, So a few years, well, not a few years, a few months down the road, I started experiencing with hallucinogenics, um, acid, cocaine, and then um, opiates. Now, I am an alcoholic, and I drink alcoholically. Drugs are a big part of my story, uh, clearly. Now, the first time I did ever experience opiates, I digress a little bit. I had my wisdom teeth taken out when I was about 13, and I got a prescription, um, you know, like anyone does for oral surgery. And I managed to take the whole prescription in, like, two and a half days, and I think it was 30 pills. And my mom, being the good pharmacist that she is, um, would help along with that pain, if that makes sense. She uh, was able to get things that maybe most people were not able to get. She did not understand at that point, I believe that, that she was helping and encouraging this addiction. And she is someone that lives very much in denial. Um, and the opiates, the first experience with that was I fell in love. It was the love of my life. Um, and I gave my I gave away my life to that drug for a solid, I'd say, seven years, but on and off for about 10. Um, I started um, dating someone who, I, who um, worked at a golf course. He was a bartender, and that was perfect. Um, and I... Um, moved out of my mom's house again and was living with him. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and he was at work a lot. Now, I started using prescription painkillers, Oxycontin at that point, um, every single day, and I got physically and emotionally and spiritually in love and addicted to that um, that drug. Um, I at the time, didn't really understand how bad the physical addiction to that particular drug was. I, I knew my friends would get sick when they stopped using it, but I was able to have a supply of it pretty much every single day that I didn't have to experience that. Um, at the time, I was also diagnosed with a nerve disorder, so I had a neurologist give me a prescription um, for a drug called tramadol, which is like a, it's now a scheduled drug, but it wasn't at the time. Um, so I took that every day for about six years, along with continuous um, hard opiate abuse, I guess I'd say. And um, I I gave my life away to it. I literally sold my 
soul um, to drugs and alcohol. You know, my sponsor says today, whatever you think about all day is your your God. And uh, drugs and alcohol were my God. I worked the steps with drugs and alcohol. Um, I gave my will and my life over to drugs and alcohol. Um, so going down the line a little bit more, I'm living with um, who was eventually now is my ex-husband and my children's father. And he's working all the time and he does not he does not know that I am struggling as much as I am, nor do I at this point. It's still fun. Um, and I was about 20, 20, 21 at this point, and um, things just started getting out of control. The lies, the manipulation, the stealing, the realizing what you can do for money, um, that... Maybe I'd only read about in stories before. <laughs> seen in the movies. Yeah, seen in the movies became reality to me. It was um, this, I would guess I would say, a privileged young white woman um, hustling and um, giving myself to people, places, and things in, ch- in exchange for what I needed. It no longer became a, ooh, I don't know about that. It became, let's do it. No, no fucks given, because um, I needed it. I needed it to survive. And um, at that point, um, my my brother was actually introduced to AA and NA through his drug and alcohol abuse, and he had been to a, um, a rehab. So my mom suggested just from, I guess, what she was kind of seeing on the outside, hey, why don't you try going to a few meetings with your brother? So I, I did so, and I had no idea what the people were saying. All I know is they were all wearing pajamas. They were all drooling on themselves. And I was like, this is awesome. I want to, you know, like, I want to be in my pajamas and drooling on myself all day. Um, and so that was my first, I guess, um, opening to the fact that there was some place that you apparently could go and get some help if you really needed it. Well, at that point, I really not only didn't think I needed it, but I also absolutely didn't want it. Because I was managing, I was still managing. I had a car, I had an apartment. I was managing to, managing to get you know what I needed on a daily basis. And um, I thought I was keeping it a secret um, as the best I could. Now, um, as more things started disappearing from the apartment, you know, televisions, computers, cell phones, you know, more expensive items, my um, my now ex, um, who I was living with got more suspicious and he, you know, kind of sat down with me and was like, you know, if you don't get straight, I'm going to kick you out of here. And I said, bye. So I went and started living with, um, another drug addict and, um, her and I just kind of fed on each other and just, um, helped our, helped each other's disease progress even more. We were very codependent. Um, we were violent with each other. We would steal from each other. We'd help each other steal from other people. And um, I never really thought that that would be my way of life, but I didn't even question it. Um, so kind of bouncing back between my mom's house, this girl's house, um, I was still seeing my ex, and then I come to find out I'm pregnant. Um, I was 22, and I was pregnant, and I was addicted to heroin at that point. Um, and, 
I went to the doctor and was trying to get a blood test for the pregnancy results and they couldn't get a vein. Um, and that was, that was where I said, okay, I am not going to have an abortion. And if I don't stop, this child is going to forever be not okay. So I somehow went cold turkey and stopped. I quit smoking cigarettes. I quit, quit using. And in my head, I was like, oh, my God, getting pregnant is the key. That's just how you get sober. <laughs> Screw AA. You just get pregnant. Dudes, you're fucked. But girls, we can just get pregnant. And I was able to stay sober for nine months um, up until the day I gave birth because, hell, they give you a lot of pain medicine, man. And I didn't know I was needing to be in recovery or even whatever. I got fentanyl. I got everything you could ever imagine and um, left the hospital feeling a-okay um, got sent home with a you know a script of pain pills and took them all in about a day and a half and was nursing my child while taking pain medicine um i so ignorant and just so um already back in the game i guess i would say my daughter was about six months old when i started using heroin heavily again on a daily basis and um resulted in people taking <laughs> leaving her with people that should not have been left with a dog never mind my precious little girl um once again full on full, you know just back in the grips of it and um hey i got sober when i got pregnant the last time hey honey let's get pregnant so I managed to get my period back because that goes away when you use heroin. And I got pregnant within two weeks. I'm gonna get off heroin again. I'm gonna get and I did. But I was taking tramadol the whole time. So took tramadol my whole second pregnancy with my son, and he was born um, by C section and um, was in the NICU for about a month. Um, due to the fact that he was suffering from withdrawals. And um, that was devastating because I saw my child, an infant, that I could hold him. You know, he, was, he weighed a healthy weight. He was about eight pounds, but I saw something I could hold in my hands that was going through the same stuff I was going through. And it was, oh, I gave this to you. And that utter demoralization, that regret, that... I'm this sick and disgusting human being just came over me and it was um, those thoughts that I believe our disease um, uses to get us back in the game. I'm no good. Why even try? So once again, I, um, I, I, I got um, the chemicals out of my system. I don't, I try not to use the word sober, I guess, during these time periods because sobriety, I guess, to me is a Dif it's different than just chemically not having something inside you, whether it be drugs or alcohol. Um, now, I picked up, I remember just those thoughts and those anxious feelings and those, um, I know what will fix how I feel right now and who to call and where to get it from came back with probably within six months of having my son. And um, I decided to call um, one of the girls that I was had used drugs with for a long time and 
she's like oh I got out of jail yesterday let's hang out and I was like sounds perfect why don't you come over to my house well I don't have a car I'll pick you up and um, within about 10 minutes we were on the phone with a dope dealer and driving about 15 miles away from my house with my two children in the backseat going to buy heroin now us being the good drug addicts that we are we couldn't wait to get home to use it so um I allowed this girl to inject me with heroin. I didn't even look to see how much it was. She did what she had to do, and I took off down the road. Um, I didn't get very far, and by the grace of God, I didn't injure my children or anyone else, but a police officer saw us driving down the road at about five miles an hour, and he was going the opposite way. And now my car swerved into a um, side rail on the side of a road, and he immediately got out, turned around, got out of his car, and started looking in the car. Now, there were two girls with their heads on the console and two children in a car seat in the back. And in my head, I had put Curious George on on the TV in the back and given them a baggie of Cheerios each, so I was a good mom. And that's what this disease will um, tell you, that you're doing okay if, you know, you're providing the bare minimum for your children. Um so I, me and this girl, okay, so they couldn't get into the car because the doors were locked, so they had to break the window open while there were two children terrified that their mother is passed out in the front seat with some girl they don't even know, and there's a window being broken by police officers. Thank God I still had my mom's address on my ID at the time, and they immediately drove to her house and said, your daughter is pronounced dead, and you need to come get your grandchildren, otherwise we're calling... Um, child protective services and um, so my mom went and got my um, went and got my kids I woke up in a hospital with tubes in my throat um, and they had done I guess what would be a Narcan um, like reversal of opiates and I had no heartbeat at the time and was not breathing and I guess they gave me enough or I believe God um, kept me alive through that Woke up in the hospital, handcuffed to a hospital bed, and was told, you're in a lot of trouble. I said, where are my children? They said, don't worry about that. Um, and uh, I knew from that point I was going to jail. Um, they finally did tell me my mom was able to come get my kids. And the next thing I know, I'm being transferred from one jail to another. And I, spend, I proceeded to spend two months there. And um, miss Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, and my son's first birthday. Um, so me being the manipulative drug addict that I am, I managed to convince my mom to bail me out because I was going to go to rehab the next day, right? Well, that never happened. Um, so I got out of jail, and it, as pathetic as it sounds, it was still my mind was what about me? I'm the one that had to sit in jail. Never mind the fact that my kids are now wondering where their mom is for the next two months and that they had this traumatic thing happen. And um, I potentially could have killed them as well as many other people. Um, I came home. My mom picked me up. Um, actually, before I even got home, I managed to go to some woman's house. Um, I literally walked out of the jail and found someone to go with that was driving somewhere and managed to leave 
smoke pot, drink, and get prescription pain pills. And I didn't even have any money on me because I just left jail. So I was um, gave them like the car that I had that had like a bus pass or whatever on it or a, Marta, a train ticket to get home. So I called my mom. She comes to this person's house and she's like, why are you here? Why are, you know, I, how did you get here? And I was like, don't worry about that. Take me home. And um, a couple days after I got home, I, um, my brother asked me, would you know, sorry, he didn't ask me. He said, we're going to an AA meeting. And um, I was like, but I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just a drug addict. So this will be great because I don't really drink all that much anyways, unless I have to and there's nothing else. And so we go, I pick up a white chip and have no really clue what that means. Um, and I'm listening though, and people are talking, I guess, what I'd call my language. Um, and that was... That was my first experience with actually being able to understand a little bit about what this program meant. I'd gone to meetings before, but it was very much at hospitals and institutions where the people there were, you know, more like 10, 13 there. They were there by absolute not choice whatsoever. This was a place that people walked into because they wanted to, needed to, and or it was an emergency and they were able to realize that. Um, so I started going to meetings a little bit and it became kind of like a social club, I guess I would say. I realized, oh, these people are as fucked up as I am. And, um, you know, we can just not use drugs for a little while. And I guess when we get tired of doing that, we'll go back to, you know, our normal ways of life. Um, so I um, was kind of going to meetings off and on and kind of getting a little bit of an idea of what was going on. I got a, a sponsor who I, I guess I attempted to work the steps with. Um, I got to my fourth step and, um, she actually went and told a bunch of people my fourth step mm. and I got a real good taste of, uh, fuck this. Like, okay, I, I see what these people are about. Come to find out about nine months later, I get a call from her saying she owes me an amends because she was using cocaine and drinking while sponsoring me. And I thought, okay, um... Okay, that was a fluke. This was someone that was as sick as I was at the time, and her ego was in the way. Um, and I forgave that person. Now, I did not stay, stay sober whatsoever at that time and um, continued to think that I could be a weekend warrior, a weekend heroin abuser, a weekend crackhead, a weekend alcoholic, a weekend whatever. Um, and it just caught right back up with me like it always did. Um, and I, I could not tell truth from lies. My lies were my truth and my truth was lies. Um, my disease really, they talk about your disease progressing. I didn't really understand that, but my, my disease sure progressed, um, quickly at this time period. And I think God manufactured it that way because I would not be alive otherwise. Um, I divorced who is now my ex-husband, the father of my two children, because he was the problem, of course, and um, continued to do what I needed to do. Now, I became the primary parent and was getting child support at this time. So Monday morning, he would pick up the kids for two days and hand me a reasonable amount of cash. They would walk out the door, I would jump in my cart and beeline for the area that in where we live to buy 
um, the substances that I was using. Um, now, that amount of money lasted for a while to support my use, and then, like any, everyone and anyone knows, it wasn't enough. So I had two day, two and a half days free from my kids at this point, and literally those were my days to get high, do what I needed to do to get high so when they came back I could ensure that I hopefully wasn't sick while they were home because being sick is horrible enough but being sick well dope sick while having two toddlers um, needing constant attention and love and food and exercise and everything was impossible for me and once again I dumped on my mom a lot and she being the enabler she was just went for it um I at this point um was full full on um okay with the fact that I knew my children were probably going to be taken away from me at any point because my brother was now sober and he knew what was going on and the only person that was kind of on my side I guess I'd say was my mom who was just an enabler so it wasn't really on my side it was just more covering for me uh, because she thought that was the right thing to do. Um, I started, I guess, pawning things more. Just life became once again completely unmanageable, but more so this time. It was, I felt my soul had left me, and all that was left was just, it was just this nasty human being, but I was okay with being that person. Um, you know, it's embarrassing. It's, um, sad but at the same time I don't think I would ever change it just um, I'm, I'm actually grateful for these experiences and tragedies today because they've shaped who I am um, so I um, continued to use and continued to abuse and continued to take advantage of everyone and anything around me and I decided I needed to go to rehab I'd never been to rehab before um, and thought, hey, I'm going to give this a chance. So I called my ex-husband, called everyone in my family, said, I'm going to rehab. You need to come get the kids now because I'm the most important thing in the entire world, and I need to go get help. I can't wait another minute. So I go to a rehab, and I went through detox, um, which was pretty okay to me because they just gave you stuff to – make you not feel sick anymore and uh, I agreed to go to the um, I guess women's recovery unit afterwards and I said I would stay as long as anyone wanted me to well about five days into it I came up with a brilliant idea to decide to tell everyone that my insurance had dropped paying for it my mom came and got me um and I convinced myself, I'm not going to use when I get out of here, even though I knew, I, it's like I could convince myself, but I knew exactly what I was going to do. Anytime there's manipulation involved, it's usually not going to be something for the better. And that's something I've learned about myself and um, about a lot of different people in this program. So I get home and I am not allowed to see my children. And it was everyone else's fault. You know, I'm a, I'm a good mom. You just, you know, you people won't leave me alone or, you know, I just need this. I just need that. That would make everything better. And I was the problem and could not see it. Um, so I continued to use for about 
I'd say three more months and it became even darker because I was completely alone. There was no one really with me. Um, I had, was, had my car taken away at the point at that point and I would walk to a bus station to take a bus to get on a train to get on the train to go where I needed. And um, that it, it was dark. It was really dark. Um, and my last experience was um, quite scary and um, I ended up running down the street and with no shoes on and being chased by my boyfriend at the time and um, I he somehow got me home I don't really remember and the next day I just remember being like I, I can't like I can't I'm gonna kill myself or I, that's it I just I thought I, I was like there is no way out I of course thought I was one of those unique you know, exceptions that AA just wouldn't work for me. I tried it, tried it. Well, I was always going because my mom wanted me to or a boyfriend or my ex-husband or my brother or my kids even. And I thought, okay, you can get sober for your children. Um, Today I'm at the place where if something tragic were to happen to my children involving me or not, at least right now in this moment, I would want to stay sober. Um, And that was um, a miracle I believe that God gave me is that um, I'm doing this because Erica wants this today, and Erica knows that, uh, or I don't know, but Erica um, is worth being alive, and that um, this program has got me to a relationship with my higher power, who I choose to call God, and this is the only peace and stability I've ever felt in my life that I've always been running and searching and fighting for. That warm, fuzzy feeling, I don't know if we're ever going to get it, but this is about as close as I can get to it, and I'm not lying, stealing, cheating, manipulating, destroying everything and everyone around me. Um, I have an incredible sponsor. I have an incredible network. Um, The willingness did not come at first. I had to pray for that. The ease and comfort, I don't always have it all I don't know if I'll ever have that I pray for that as well the pink cloud thing does not happen for me um but I'm able to walk through these anxieties and these fears that I have held so precious as my ultimate tool and excuse to keep using um and today I am a free woman um not just physically emotionally spiritually mentally and I'm capable of things that I never thought I'd be capable of, um, all because of this program and um, what it has to offer. If you are truly, truly in need of help and want help, it will work. It works every time if you work it. And um, I'm just, I'm just grateful today. Utterly grateful and humbled by this experience, and you know, a little bit embarrassed I guess but we've all um, walked a journey and have story to tell and as long as I can help one other person that's all that matters so I appreciate it thank you oh you're welcome thank you thank you for sharing that um, can can you talk to us about uh, what the 12 steps uh, look like for you and, and... I sure can <laughs> So with uh, my sponsor, 
um, I've gone through all the tw- all twelve steps, and um, what they look for, what they look like for me is, um, you know, there's principles behind each one, but um, I, I, um, I couldn't uh, for a long time admit that I was powerless over pretty much anything, especially you know things I could that were tangible. How could I be powerless over something? Um, but I was because when I had something, say a drug or an alcohol, I couldn't throw it away. It was like so precious to me um and um utter powerlessness i just i i i I didn't know what was going to happen once i started and um i knew it wasn't going to stop um and uh that is kind of a scary realization for me the first step was the hardest thing hardest thing because i didn't um I didn't want to be powerless over anything and my ego was there and I felt as though I could, you know, I'm a smart enough person that I can, you know, logically get myself out of this. Well, it was, um, it was drilled into me through my, um, experiences that that was not so. Um, step two, came to believe power greater myself could restore me to sanity. I knew I was insane. <laughs> I knew I was insane. Um, and I, I also say I, I think I was insane before I even picked up a substance. I, there was something very not correct about me, I guess I would say. Um, I just never felt whole. Not that I do all the time today, but um, I would always consider myself a little a little nutty. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I've always believed in a God. Um, I grew up Catholic household. I just didn't believe in a God that could keep me sober. I didn't know that that was even a possibility. Um, so I believe for the most part, I have been restored to sanity. Some days better than others. Um, making a decision to turn my will and my life over to that God. Um, I had to not put too much thought into that because I could talk myself out of it and I still can on a daily basis. Um, it's saying a prayer and just basically saying, you know, God, I can't do this. Help me get out of my own way so that you can do it for me. Um, and then making an inventory, um, searching and fearless moral inventory. Um, you know, that was that 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 was a very <laughs> My sponsor has a filing cabinet, and I have the I have a very large file that she keeps um, with regards to my fourth step, and it's gotten bigger over you know over a time period. And I think it's supposed to because everything you know things come up every single day, and um, I continue to have to do it on different things, not just you know what the big book says to write down, um, and then admitting my faults and the exact nature of them to another human being and to God um, that that was a I guess that was a freeing feeling that was more freeing to me than just even writing it it was more cathartic um, than my actual fourth step God knows all and um, he's already forgiven me so just being able to tell another human being that was like yeah girl I did that shit too not like, holy crap, you're going to get arrested and I'm going to call the police on you because you've done so many illegal things. Mm-hmm. 
I I was entirely ready to have God um, remove all these defects of character. Um, have they're not all removed? But if I let if I'm in God's complete will, I believe they are. But I am humanly incapable of doing that on a hundred percent base period. Um, but I do pray every morning that I can work on the defects that I had yesterday and that I can, you know, progress as not just a human being, a sober human being, but as just a, you know, just a citizen. I mean, it's like being a decent human being, um, supersedes pretty much anything. Um, step seven, asking God to remove all my shortcomings humbly, humbly is a, you know, key word in that, um, that one, I think I tend to take back because I can kind of use some of my, what I don't know what you call shortcomings to my advantage still. Um, but just, um, asking him to help me be aware of those things on a daily basis so that I can try and turn them over to him the best I can. Um, um, making a list of all the people we had harmed and being willing to make amends to them. Well, that is um, a long list. And, um, you know, I my sponsor did not say, go find your drug dealer that you ripped off and tell him that you're sorry and give him the $75 and blah, blah, No, I'm not going to do that. He's fine. That person is fine. I don't need to see him. Um, but living amends, that's probably been the, the most precious and most... Um, moving experience that I've ever had is to be able to live them and not just sit down and say I'm so sorry I'm so because that's what I did for a lot you know no one wanted to hear that I don't want to hear you're sorry you're not sorry sorry means you're not going to do it again I kept doing it um so being able to live it and provide for my children and um hold up my end of the bargain I guess you would say um then making direct amends that goes into the living amends as well as um, some people I did have to write letters to, old friends that I didn't need to talk to, but did feel like I needed somewhat. I have no idea if they got these letters, but I'm okay with that today. Um, personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitting it. Um, I kind of have to do that one backwards because if I start making an inventory and don't say something I'm likely to keep it to myself so I more promptly admit stuff to my sponsor or someone in my network and then go through what exactly a prompted that whatever it may be a rude remark a poor action um not being honest um whatever it may be and um 11 um prayer meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, um, praying only for his will and the power to carry that out. Um, I try to stay in as much constant contact with God, I guess, as I can. Um, prayer doesn't have to be something to me that you kneel down and are in a church to do. Um, it can be anywhere. Um, I mean, I've prayed near trash cans. It, you know, it can be it, it God's with you at all times and with you when you need him. And then step, step 12, um, having had that spiritual awakening, 
and carrying the message to other alcoholics and addicts as we practice these principles in all our affairs. Um, I have not sponsored anyone yet, but I have, um, I definitely feel as though that working with other women, even if I'm not sponsoring them, has encouraged me because I feel very insecure about this step and that, you know, why would anyone want me to help them? Um, but at the same time, my sponsor says she felt that same way when she started out and um, that's just, that's natural. That's our, that's kind of what our disease wants to tell us um, an ability to keep it, you know, sick. Um, so, um, that's what I've um, experienced and that's what these, these steps have brought me, um, you know, a lot of the promises. Erica, you have a powerful story. Wow, that is compelling. And I think we're all just kind of sitting here in awe um, at what you've gone through and overcome. Uh, I think I may have missed this in the beginning, but uh, how long have you been sober? Um, my sober date is March 29th of 2017, so 14 months. Awesome. Awesome. So just got your one-year trip. Uh, yeah, about two months ago. Yep. Now, a little earlier, you know, after going through this experience, you talked a lot about how, you know, your truth were lies, your lies were your truth. Um, I'm just kind of curious, like, what is your truth today? Um, my truth today is... I'm a child of God in that every experience I've been through um, has there. God has good in every experience, and I believe that um, nothing is done um, for a bad purpose as long as you can try to see God's will through even the mistakes you've made and learn from them. So my truth today is that I um, am worthy of being sober. And that um, if I can trust and get out of the way, that God can keep me sober and that I can have a good life, a, a decent life um, that isn't just, oh, my God, i got to wake up and stay sober because I'm out of my mind and going crazy. It's not like that anymore, thank God, because I would not be doing this still. I would have no interest in it um, if I could just stay sober on my own. Um, so I, you know, I, and I need others. That's another part of my truth. I'm an, a very isolating human being. And. Uh, my truth is I can't do this alone. So, Erica, thank you so much for being here. Um, it was really an honor and a privilege for you to share your story, and I know it takes an immense amount of courage and humility, um, you know, to share it with a sponsor, but to share it with a room full of people that you don't really know that well, aside from Troy. Um, mm -hmm. So, sincerely, thank you so much. Um, you know, you talked a lot about kind of coming in and out of the rooms and, um what was kind of the breaking point for you or what was that rock bottom that you hit that ultimately led to your sobriety and your continued to sobriety? And this is a two-part question. Um, the second piece is what would you tell others who are in, in this kind of same shoes if maybe they're on the fence about AA, you know, what would what advice would you give them to stick through it? Um, for me, for me personally, my family member being my brother had a huge role in that. Um, he had about five years sober when he kind of introduced me to AA. Um, he's someone that used used and drank the way I did, and I did, I did not think he could stay sober. And um, I, I 
I, he said, if you can just believe that I'm sober, then you can, you know, maybe believe that you could possibly stay sober. Um, and so seeing that it made it a little bit more real to me and that I could, I could see it. Cause I didn't know if all of you were lying to me. I mean, I've hear up here, people picking up chips, not sober and sponsoring people, not sober. So I have trust issues too. And I think we all, um, especially drug addicts and alcoholics have those because we didn't trust ourselves. Um, so the breaking point for me was, I think just, I had tried everything. I tried doing it myself. I tried other medicines. I tried, you know, talking myself out of it, praying myself out of it, meditating myself out of, you know, just everything. And I realized that there was something you people were doing, but you were doing it to an extent that I hadn't tried. So I said, I'm miserable, can't do this anymore. I'm going to work the steps like I worked my addiction, I guess, so to speak. I'm going to give it, I'm going to, I'm actually going to try this. And it was not easy at first. It was horrible. And I felt like it wasn't going to work. I'd have moments where it wasn't going to work. And I would just ask, ask God to just direct me. And I'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to drive here. And then all of a sudden I would just, I'm going to go to a meeting or just little things like that. Um, And I think God put in my path, the people the places and the things to help keep me sober and remove the ones that um, couldn't or that wouldn't. Hey, uh, another question I, I had is, you know, you talked a lot about the beginnings um, of your experience, starting with your parents, um, your father being um, an alcoholic and your mother being an enabler. It's a word you use often, but what is something you would have liked your parents to do different when you were younger or... Um, I think I, um, I, I, the self-confidence thing is very interesting to me, especially for a young girl. I, you know, I hear about your first, um, idea of God is your actual paternal father. And, um, my first, I guess, experience or idea of God was a angry man that, um, if you got in his way, he was going to mow right over you. So I immediately, um, I had no voice in life, no voice. Um, I would have, I would have liked to know that um, that I was worth something and worthwhile. My mom was so consumed with my dad's um, issues that it was almost like she had no time to to give me and my brother the encouragement and the, I guess, just love we needed, even if um, you know we still you know became what we were as far as addicts and alcoholics just um there was no sense of worth like you're worth anything and that was um de- it was devastating and that's something I work on with my children to make sure they know you are something you matter and that you don't have to fall into anyone or anything's idea of what you are so that would be I guess one of the biggest things that I wish um especially my mom ensued in me um was worthiness but this I mean I found it and for the most part it's something I get to you know work on and get to I get the privilege of helping my children with that um today what's your relationship with your mom like today it's actually very good she's an Al-Anon and has been now for 
15 years. And what is Al-Anon for people who Okay, Al-Anon is for the family members of alcoholics and addicts. They go there to help work on the fact that they're extremely codependent. Um, Because I know codependency can be addicting. I mean, even as an addict, I definitely experienced that. Um, It's you get like a rush off it, um, much like a drug or gambling or anything like that. And my mom's had to work on that. And our relationship today is good. And she can say no to me and I can say no to her. And there are actual boundaries. It's a struggle, just like any other relationship outside of addiction or inside it. But, um, you know, we pray together, we go to church together, we talk, and I can actually be honest with her. And she listens and doesn't, um, doesn't just go with along with everything I said she can say no today and that's awesome it feels good to have someone be like no (laughs) you know um I I think we would be remiss if we didn't say that I am sure to to my core that your parents did the best they could with what they had absolutely um uh, but I remember working with your brother at a point in time and um I the, the whole focus was on him you know, uh, and I'm sure that there are other families that are experiencing this dynamic. And if you could just kind of expand on how does it feel when no one is really looking at you and your addiction and your problems and your issues because of another family member's issues, problems, and addictions? Yeah, um, that was, I think, also kind of what enabled me to keep going in a way because I was not being watched. Um but, you know, as an attention-seeking human being, it was like, well, you know, I, I see what he's doing and everyone's focusing on him. So, you know, it was that if I can't beat him, join him kind of attitude. And um, eventually um, it, it, it was it – was, I mean, I dropped out of high school and nobody even cared. It was like – and I, was, I did not come from a family that you drop out of high school. You go to university and get your master's and – you know, are very well-rounded, educated human being. And I, I dropped out of high school in 10th grade. And um, like I said, I, I had no voice and um, no one was willing to listen to it. So that is deeply ensued in me. And that, that, interestingly enough, has been one of my biggest character defects is I don't know how to speak up because there was no one listening anyway, so why would I? Um, so it's been a downfall as well as... Um, Something I'm grateful for today is that I get to learn, even as a grown woman, but I do get to learn that um, what I say has value and um, that I'm not just being, you know, pushed aside or ignored, I guess, all the time. Hi, I'm uh, Justin. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Justin. And uh, Erica, thank you so much for telling your story. I, uh, I relate to it a lot. It was powerful. Um, You know, for me, my primary drug of choice was also opiates. Um, I also had an older brother. I have a five-year-old, five-year-older brother. Um, I am Canadian as well. Born in Toronto, Canada. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Air high five. I knew you were looking at him when you said that. Yeah. So We got Drake in here. (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I, I relate, you know, a lot you know, to that, to that story. And, um, you know, brought up old, you know, feelings that I had when I came to AA, you know, at first I went to NA meetings and HA meetings. And, um, you mentioned that, you know, people in AA spoke, you know, your language and, you know, could you just, you know, 
to people who are listening who are addicted to other substances, can you explain how AA could even benefit them, you know, admitting that you're powerless over alcohol um, as the first step? Because that was the hardest step for me to take as well. Um, yeah, I can all, you know, I've experienced, I've been to CANA, um, CMA, you know, I, I can, do you, can, can you tell me what those acronyms okay, mean? NA is Narcotics Anonymous. CMA is Crystal Meth Anonymous. Um, CA is Cocaine Anonymous. MA is Marijuana Anonymous. GA is Gamblers Anonymous. I haven't had to go to that one yet. Um, I bet you you will. <laughs> you saw what I did right whatever. there. <laughs> um, and, um, so I, I have experienced a lot of the A's. Let's just say I've, I've through my, um, you know, trying to fix myself, I was like, oh, well, maybe this one will do it. Um, personally, AA, uh, and I don't know what, I, I, I like the big book. I like the, I like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I like the way AA works the steps. And my sponsor has never used a drug in her life. And I relate to her 1 million percent. Um, we had very different bottoms. They looked very different, but they were the same. Um, and you know, she said, I didn't steal from people, but I stole nights from my children that they deserved. And that to this day gives me goosebumps because it's the same thing. Um, and I, um, I never want to, you know, put down another, um, anonymous group because I think they're amazing. I like, I listen to, um, a speaker meeting actually every night before I go to sleep, which has become a habit. And I listen to NA speakers generally. Um, I listen to AA speakers as well, but, um, it's it's all powerful. It's all, um, you know, something that is out there to help you. Um, and the only struggle I've ever had with some meetings is, especially opiates, there will be people that are still using, and I can see the effects of them in the rooms, and it does get that, I don't know if it's jealous, but that, that's one of my triggers is seeing people messed up on that specific drug. Yeah, I can I can definitely understand that. And you also mentioned, uh, you know, being prescribed medication as well throughout your addiction. And I know there's people out there who are trying to get sober, but they're in they're in chronic pain or they have anxiety or they get prescribed depression medication. Um, you know, I know it's a controversial topic, but what is your opinion on that? You know, are you still you know, prescribed anything or do you, you know, if you, if, um, I don't take anything but birth control. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have enough children. No, I'm just um, uh, personally I, I, and I've been, you know, in rehabs, what they do, they hand you antidepressants, they hand you this, they hand you that. And, um, it's not because I think they're bad. I, you know, I've been diagnosed all kinds of things, and it's like, well, I've been smoking crack and shooting heroin for seven days straight. Yeah, I have the symptoms of a bipolar person. Um, so you're bipolar. Here's this. Okay, I guess I'll try this. Anything to change how I felt, I was willing to do. Um, and, you know, if um, – but my viewpoint on that is that – Maybe I'm not educated enough to know exactly what's right or wrong for anyone. Um, everyone's different. And I, um, if you're not, in my opinion, feeling high or just, you know, if your medication doesn't make you feel different, different, then, I mean, who am I to judge? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Um, but I am a person that has been prescribed things and for many years and just from my experience it wasn't healthy for me 
it gave me the mindset of what I grew up with was take a pill for everything, you know, especially having the mom being, you know, <laughs> the legal drug dealer that she is. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, so I, for me, that's just something, if I hurt myself, I'll take Advil. But other than that, it's kind of like slippery soap for me personally. Um, there's even like, this is kind of interesting, but I'm going to bring this up. There's some like drink that you can buy off kombucha. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't want to drink that. I took a sip of it and it was actually my brother's. He was drinking it. It's 3% alcohol. I took a sip of it and it wasn't that I felt any way, but it, it tasted interesting. And I was like, Nope, sorry. Can't do that. (laughs) And you know, I, to each their own, but I got to be really careful. Um, my brain plays a lot of tricks on me and tells me, you know, if I consume 80 pounds of broccoli, things will be okay. And it's like, well, nobody needs to do that. So I just, I'm addicted to, I can be addicted to anything and everything. I was born an addict. I'll die an addict. Give me anything and I can find a way to screw it up. So um, I got to be very vigilant and very careful. And that's something that, um, you know, I, I struggle with. I think, you know, I pass a pharmacy sometimes and it's like, oh. <laughs> doctor shopping or you know and I you know I, I manipulated everyone and everything and I would be scared I sometimes get you know as soon as I walk in a doctor's office I'm in recovery I'm in recovery I'm in recovery hey I'm in recovery and it's like okay chill out lady like we get it <laughs> but I'm terrified because that was another one for me I loved going to doctors and um, seeing what I could you, get it's a high get out of it yeah mm-hmm. you so know I, 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 I get that and you know, I'm glad you brought up the topic of vigilance, you know, because it's it's been some time since I've had my first my my first meeting and and I can tell you that one of the things that I was told was if you go to the dentist, let the dentist know that you are in recovery. If you go to the doctor, let the doctor know that you're in recovery. So when you when you say you go in there and you say, "Hey, no opiates, no painkillers, please, please." I'm that guy. I you know I'd I mean? say I'm allergic to them like physically yeah. and I am I'm, I'm that guy as well and because uh, I could start the wheels could start turning mm-hmm. and oh I didn't say it at first I still have time I still have time I, honestly I think that's so interesting um and I'm sorry uh, my name is Lucy I'm a friend of AA and also um co-host for this show um Justin you brought up a great point and I wanted to ask like what exactly is the responsibility of health professionals um in recovery i mean because one this is no shade to any mother or anything but one the pharmacist two the doctors with your first pregnancy and the painkillers i know too at that time you weren't really in a mind space to say hey i don't need drugs you know you didn't believe that you had a problem but even pregnancy number two with the doctors <clears throat> and the opiates like what responsibility do you all feel health professionals have when it comes to really working in the best interest of the patient? Well, primarily they need more than four days of study on alcoholism. Typically that's what doctors receive in school. In residency, unless you specialize in addiction, uh, it's not spoken of at all. Now, what how it, imp- it impacts us is because uh, Big Pharma they deal with the doctors. They tell the doctor that if, if, if they show symptoms of this, that, or that, give them this. You know, don't, 
don't ask them if if they have a an allergy to it. You know what I mean? That'll that'll reveal itself. Right. The scary part of this is that um, that that whole mentality and the philosophy that there is a pill for everything is still alive and well. And for us, those of us who are so stricken by this disease, it is incumbent on us to be our own best advocate. And what that looks like is, you know, that first step, be honest. Be honest with this professional who has his hand on the the nuclear button. You know what I mean? Because he has the, the ability to blow my life up. All right? If I don't tell this person and now put the onus on them, um, they will do what they customarily do, and that is uh, delve out the, the the most appropriate and the one that gives them the most kickback. Yeah. Sean, I kind of want to hear what you have to say about that, too. You know, I agree with um, everything Troy said, and I, I think, though, you know, <clears throat> it's a great point about kind of big pharma, and I just watched a movie the other day, um, you know, about off-label prescriptions, and that a lot of doctors um, <clears throat> or a lot of the um, drug reps will will talk about, let's say, I'm just going to throw Ritalin out, for example, right? And they'll say, okay, well, so you're, you're using it for these symptoms, but have you thought about um, applying it to this, this, and that also? Because some other doctors are, are having great success. Um, success with using Ritalin for curing this X, Y, and Z. Um, and a lot of the doctors, you know, rely on that advice. So really, yeah, let me, let me slip you this white paper on some of the results they've had. And then you have a lot of off label, um, you know, prescriptions being used for, used for things that they weren't intended for. But I think, you know, there, there, there are, you know, training is a huge issue. I think though, on the other side, there are some really good doctors and I've experienced that myself. You know, one of, one of my irrational fears is a fear of flying Mm -hmm. and, um, part of getting honest, you know, is talking to my doctor or talking to people about things that, that bother me. And, um, you know, my doctor was like, listen, I don't want to prescribe you anything. And I was like, well, good, because I don't want anything either. And they're like, but, you know, all that does is mask the symptoms, right? The, the, what you need to do is learn to find a a way to deal with and cope with this irrational fear. And you got to get on a plane. It's something you have to do. And if I medicate you, you're never going to be able to come to terms with that. You're never going to be able to deal with the underlying fears and phobias. And once you do it and once you fly a few times, because I used to, I would get on a plane, I would take... It, I would joke. It was like a six drink minimum, mm-hmm. you know, uh, by the time the, the cart had rolled around the first time, I probably had four doubles in me, you know, and I was happy as a clam, you know, and of course I had to get there and drive somewhere and get in the rental car and do all that, which was stupid. But, um, so yeah, you know, and <clears throat> the other thing also, and I, I talked to folks outside the program and, you know, I'm still very cautious with who I reveal, um, you know, what I struggle with and that I'm in the program because there's a lot of judgment. And a specific example is um, someone very close to me in the office. You know, we have we've had some heated debates about the use of opioids. And and this person made a comment like, oh, well, they're just so weak minded they're, they're just, They just have no willpower. And so the example I gave is the person who goes in for pain and the doctors prescribe the opioid and then that stops working after a while and then they doctor shop and then they get put on a, a, a list. Now you can't get prescriptions anymore. And next thing you know it, these they're in the up, street upstanding. I'm citizens. on that list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, really, really great, intelligent, smart, well-meaning people 
who never ever thought that they would find themselves on the other face of addiction are now in a back alley getting heroin or getting pumped with Narcan because they unintentionally overdosed. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we, as a nation, we need a lot more attention on our first inclination. Well, our, their first, I'm not a doctor either. Um, their first inclination to just prescribe a pill instead of treating the underlying cause. You know, that's, that's absolutely valid. I think, Erica, you and I worked on, on, on something this week uh, that was similar to that. A friend of ours uh, that you brought to my attention that they, they were struggling with uh, a relapse. And it was based on a car accident that occurred, which was really a non-incidental thing. But as an addict and an alcoholic, we will use anything to promote the, the idea that I need something for this. And what happened was, you know, this person uh, went to the doctor and said, yeah, I had a car accident. My neck hurts. My back hurts. You know, I need something for it, you know, because... And he forgot his first step. And he mm-hmm. forgot his first step. He, he, he told this person, the doctor, everything but... I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. Please bear that in mind as you prescribe something to me. Because just as much as we have these heavy, heavy narcotics that will address a pain issue, there are also non-narcotics that will address that same issue. And for someone in recovery, we want to focus on the doctor that will direct you in the thing that will help your recovery. Right. There is homeopathic. There is... Um, you know, sport, not, maybe not sports medicine, but there is, you know, um, you know, just oh, physical therapy is what I meant. Um, lots of different aspects and options. We don't necessarily like those options because they don't work as quick. Because we need instant. Instant relief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, that's the key with alcoholics and addicts. And, you know, I believe pain is for a reason. It's to tell you to stop doing what you're doing. Well, when I take pain pills, I feel great, so I'll do whatever. You're actually hurting yourself more because you're probably driving and doing a bunch of other stuff while on these pills rather than resting. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I um, just from having a family member in the medical field that, you know, doles out medicine every day to people, um, she's actually got on the board with the DEA and helping make awareness of the fact that People are dying every single day, not just from heroin, but from these pills they're handing to us that I get at the pharmacist, that I pay a copay for, that whatever it may be. And, um, you know, it, it, heroin and opiates and all this stuff, it it's not like it used to be where it was just some dingy guy in a back alley. It, it, this disease does not discriminate is what I'm trying to get at, and it wants us, and it will do whatever it takes. But yet, and so, you know, um, let's, let's, let's not forget you know, there is a part of me that is always, always going to be looking for something to alter my state of mind, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I have to be vigilant, you know, and we talked about this vigilance in the beginning, you know, and I think it, it bears uh, repeating that vigilance is required in recovery, always maintaining the fact that I, my, my recovery must come first, no matter what. Um, and in doing so, that will help motivate you. Because, you know, when we decide that we no longer want to live this this other lifestyle, you know what I mean, it doesn't remove that experience from us. So now it, it is about adding 
you know, something to my life that will help alter me making that decision to go get drunk. Alter that decision, you know what I mean? It's like I'm a restaurant, and I, my address hasn't changed, but I'm on the new management now, you know what I mean? So we, we pick from different options on the menu now. No longer am I required to pick the tequila, you know what I mean? There's, there's carrot juice on this thing? Oh, yo, now let me have that carrot juice, because carrot juice doesn't give me what tequila does. You know, and um, I, I, I view my my recovery and I hope that that uh, I, I am aware at all times that I'm being watched and not by you, but I'm being watched by that that internal addict, that internal drunk. He is always there. He's just been on, placed under arrest. You know, and he's been under arrest now for some time. And in order for me to maintain that, I have to do certain things. And, you know, Troy, just a final thought. Um, As we talk about kind of, you know, this disease doesn't discriminate. And for me coming into the rooms, you know, I'm still really new in sobriety, um, just six months in now. One of the biggest things that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks when I came in was the diverse population of people. And it's not the seedy underbelly of society that you imagine when you walk into a CA or NA or AA meeting. It's doctors, it's lawyers, it's professionals, it's teachers, it's the guys driving your kid's bus, it's businessmen, it's all levels of society. And um, really from my experience, I've met some of the most loving, caring, genuine, um, non-judgmental people that I've never met outside the room. So to anyone who's on the fence about, should I walk into the meeting? The sooner you do, the sooner you're going to get relief. And if you just humble yourself and listen to someone else who's walked your path um, and you follow the steps, I mean, you're going to be on um, the right journey. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Clean Dreams is here for those of us who are in need. If you need uh, to hear uh, and and get help for for your illness and your addiction, your your alcoholism, we're here for you. If you need help in finding a meeting or a halfway house or a recovery center, we're here for you. But more than that, if you need to hear about the love and care that we've found and uh, that we are willing to freely give to you. We're here for you as well. Clean Dreams can be found on YouTube and SoundCloud, and uh, we're working very hard to get uh, 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 a broader bandwidth of of, uh, exposure. But at this point, we're here, and we would like you to tune in next time when we we bring you another solution-based program. Thank you very much. Have a good night.